Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come now to uh, the consideration of your word as is preached. And we pray, Lord, that you would indeed um, use the channel. And may that channel be forgotten. And may you be heard. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, we turn this morning to um, the first epistle of John, I want to review a bit so that we can sort of get a running start on what's uh, before us today. And so uh, the last time we looked at 1 John chapter 3, we considered uh, what kind of love the Father has given or bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And this was a couple of weeks ago, so you may need to think about that a little bit when we went over all of that. We emphasize the fact that John begins this by saying, Behold. And uh, when we look at the first verse of the chapter, we see that right at the beginning. And when John says in the opening here, See or Behold, he is referencing that spirit of excitement of showing someone something special and wanting them to contemplate the the beauty of that thing, the the beauty of its parts, and to take in the wonder of its whole. And that's what he's wanting us to do as we consider this thing he's about to set before us. And what is this thing that he's setting before us? Well, his invitation, which is really an instruction, is for you to pause and to consider from all angles What he is setting before you, which is in this case, the love of the Father for you who are called by him. And he wants you to stop and consider the character, the nature of that love, where it comes from, what it means, what its impact is. We saw, too, that the instruction includes examining what kind or what manner of love this is. And all the aspects of it and all that we detailed back in March. Um, John then describes this love of God as being given or bestowed on you. Not parceled out to you in occasional gifts. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, as it were, it's lavished upon you as a believer. And it's, it's thrown over you like a cloak, this love. Um, Not oppressively, but genuinely and effectively. And it was done before the foundations of the world. As uh, Revelation 13.8 says, The name of the Lord's beloved were written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, who was slain before the foundations of the world. And so that love was already being extended to you before the foundations of the world. Now, the result of this great love we also considered, and the result is that it has named each of you who believe a child of God. And I used the illustration back in March of the parents pointing out to family and friends their son or their daughter in the nursery where all the children are gathered together and pointing out and saying, that one's ours, that one's mine, um, and the Lord doing that with you and me. The picture that John gives you here is akin to that. The Lord choosing out of love 
to identify you as his own and calling you his child in this very special and particular way. Now notice as you look at the verse that John is careful to say that it's not just a matter of you being called a son or daughter or child of God, but he adds, and so we are. And so we are. And that's to emphasize the fact that it's not just like carrying a label. It is a real thing. It is an actual thing. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, this is the epistle, the Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is much more, beloved, being called a child of God, much more than a title or just a name. It's a real and substantive calling. It involves receiving the spirit of adoption. It involves the tenderest and the most loving communion with God as your father. And it makes you an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So it's not just setting a title upon you. It is something that envelops you and draws you in and blesses you in so many ways. In Peter, 1 Peter, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is who you are, believer. You are a child of God, not just in word, but in deed. And it's the result of his love being lavished on you. Now, that's all getting us up to speed. Now we get to where we are. Shift your eyes for just a moment away from this happy state of being called a child of God with the uh, spirit of adoption and communion with the Lord and all the blessings that are a part of that. Just cast your eyes away from that for a moment and reflect on how the world in general reviews or views, I should say, Christians. You can fill in the blank as you've heard it or you've seen it written. Speaking now from the world's perspective, Christians are. And what do you hear stuck in that blank? All sorts of unseemly terms have been attached to Christians over the ages. And they're not drying up by any means. 
Believers, simple Bible-believing Christians, have been called everything from bigots to traitors and have been accused of all sorts of crimes against humanity. Christians are often judged by those who don't really know any believers as being judgmental, which I find a laughable irony, being judged by people who don't know you as being judgmental, as if they're not. The judgments leveled against Christians are some of the most unreasonable and disingenuous charges one can imagine. And because the doctrines that you hold to are often so twisted and misunderstood, they're represented in terms that have nothing to do with what you believe or or, or what is the truth about Orthodox Christianity. In fact, sometimes I think when you hear yourself being described by so-called experts and your beliefs are being detailed, you may wonder who and what they're talking about. Where did they find Christians who are like that? Where did they find people who say that they're Christians who believe that, the things that they believe in? What are they talking about with such a sense of authority? And it only serves really to demonstrate their own ignorance, that they're talking about something they know nothing about. And at such times, a tempting question might arise in our own hearts. A a question that asks, as a simple child of God, why have they gotten this so wrong? Why do they see our acts of love as expressions of hate? Why do they so grossly misrepresent us and our beliefs? Why do they do this? I mean, it's not like what we hold to as believers is a secret. It's, it's out there everywhere. Um, anybody can get access to it. And it's not like we're hiding. Anybody can approach us and ask us about it. So why is it that they get it so wrong? Why do they see what we are trying to do in love and an affection for the Lord and for others as some sort of act of hate? Calvin puts it another way, asking this, why doesn't the world regard Christians as the children of God? Why don't they look at us and say, I don't know anything else about these people, but they're sure the children of God. Why don't they see that? Why do they not recognize the royal mark upon us as believers, but on the contrary, generally treat you with contempt and ridicule? He concludes by saying this, Hence it can hardly be inferred from our present state that God is a father to us. For the devil so contrives all things as to obscure this benefit. Well, if that question is rising in your mind, the answer is here. The reason that they don't see that mark on you, the reason that they misinterpret what you believe and what you do, is because they don't know 
your father. If you ask, why is the devil so successful in stirring up uh, this sort of reaction to believers, to Christianity? Well, we just come right back here, and you'll see the answer. John says here, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In short, they don't recognize you as the sons and daughters of God, of your father, because they don't know him. And that's why. I'm fairly certain that probably with the exception of Bonnie, none of you have ever met my father. And not knowing him, um, you don't know any of his features or his characteristics or his mannerisms or any of those that we share. Every day I see more of him in myself. But none of you recognize either the appearance or the mannerisms or the inflections or the sayings that identify my relationship with him because you don't know him. So you can't say that when you see me do something and you think that's one of his funny idiosyncrasies. You don't realize that it's not really my fault. I got it from my father. You don't know that because you don't know my father. And this is what John is saying here in regard to your relationship with your heavenly father. They don't see or understand your Christ-like behavior, beloved, which is what demonstrates your adoption because they don't know his father and yours. And because they don't know that, they don't recognize in you those things which identify you with him. If you look back at the last verse of the second chapter, that is the last verse of the second chapter of 1 John, John says this in verse 29, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So if you understand that he's righteous, and then you see people living in a Christ-like fashion that is conformed to the righteousness of God, then you know that they're the sons of the Father. Now just think of the people you know or have heard speak who reject the idea of the righteousness of God as he presents himself in his word. They say things like, that's not my God. So something lifted right from the pages of scriptures about who God is, is presented. And somebody says, well, the Bible may say that, but that's not my God. They're right away rejecting who he is. So when you lift that out and you say, well, because this is my God and my Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, I have to conform to this word, they don't recognize that in you as conforming to God because they don't recognize that as their God. When they hear something that they don't like in the Bible, they just reject it. God says that in his righteousness, he's going to judge sin and sinners. 
And what do they say? That's not my God. My God is a God of love. And he would never do that. And so on. The contest between Christianity and liberalism that was discussed over the last few days here in the the Tabor lectures often brought this very object to light. The rejection of men and women of the righteous God of the scriptures in favor of an idea of God born out of the fallen preference of their human imagination. And so when you don't line up with their fallen imagination of God, then they don't see you as the children of God. They see you as something else. Do you recall the accusations made against your sinless Savior? Do you remember the things they said about him? They said in part he was a blasphemer. He was a defiled person. He was a demon-like servant of the devil. He was a glutton. He was a drunkard. He was a friend and approver of sinners and their sins. He was a Sabbath breaker. He was a child of fornication. He was an insurrectionist and a traitor and a liar. That's just a partial list. They could not, says Candlish, and he says this so well, understand his thorough sympathy with God, his burning zeal for God, his holy anger, or anger kindled at the sight of whatever outraged the righteous character and claims of God, his lofty, uncompromising loyalty to God's righteous government and law, his tender concern for the little ones given to him by God, that they might be shielded from man's wrong and led in God's righteous way. They couldn't understand any of that because they didn't know God. So they couldn't see any of those things in the Son of God. And does any of that sound familiar? That rejection and the rejection of those things? They aren't any better now, are they? They're not any better at seeing those things. Do you find the world understanding or recognizing your zeal for God? They didn't recognize it in the Son of God, the sinless Son of God. Do you find that they can't grasp why you hate sin? What's the problem with you? Why are you so bigoted? Why do you have to always be talking about sin? Or why it is that you love the law of the Lord? Do they understand why you are appalled at the things that they are perpetrating against children? Do they understand that? No, they don't understand it. They think you're hateful and bigoted. And the reason is they do not know the Father. And they didn't recognize that in the Son, beloved, if they didn't recognize it in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think they're going to recognize it in you? This mark of the Lord, this zeal for the Lord, this love for the Lord's word and for his kingdom and for his people and for the innocents, if they couldn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God, 
because they did not know God and his righteousness, how can it be imagined that they would recognize you? Strange as it may seem, it is precisely because of your Christ-likeness that the world does not recognize you as a child of God. And to us, that seems insane. How can they not recognize that? But it's the truth. Because they don't know him. They have a different God. And because you don't look like their imaginary deity, they think you are the servants of the devil, full of bigotry and full of hatred. And again here, John, of course, is looking back on the very words of Jesus. Back in his gospel, chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now in verse 2 of 1 John chapter 3, so that's the end of verse 1. In verse 2, we read this, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And here John emphasizes that you are his children now. God's children by his election. But the completeness of what you shall be as a child of God has not yet been made fully apparent. In fact, it's implied that what will happen in you as you come fully into all that is yours in Christ is unspeakable in its glory and its wonder. Just too much for you to bear or to understand at present. And it's certainly too much for the world to understand or perceive. But when he comes again and you're raised from the dead or you're translated to meet him in the air, it will all be revealed. You shall be like him because you will see him as he is. And so will they. And they will see that connection. They will see that royal mark upon you. They will see who you are as the children of God when they see him as he is. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, these are familiar verses, beginning in verse 51. There's that word again. Behold, stop, think, reflect on this. I tell you a mystery. You shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Seeing the fullness of his likeness, you will bear his likeness. Paul said just before this, in 1 Corinthians 15.49, Just as you have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. As Calvin says, right now we fall very short of the full glow of God's children. But that's just a temporary situation. And it's not safe or wise to judge what will be by what is at the moment. We will address that more this afternoon in the afternoon service. But for now, look at what John says next because it leads us to the practical side of this whole point. When John sets all this out before you and he says, look, the world doesn't recognize you as a child of God because it doesn't know God. Does John then say, because the world can't recognize you for what you are, because they don't know God, and instead of being recognized as a child of God, you're suspected of all sorts of evil, pull back. Compromise a bit. Comply more with the world and its demands so that you can appear in their eyes and judgment to be more loving and to be more reasonable, to be less judgmental. And your behavior will become more acceptable to them. Is that what John says next? It's not, is it? He doesn't say that. What does he say in verse 3? And everyone who hopes in him that he or she is a child of God purifies himself as he is pure. We don't retreat into the world and camouflage who we are. Rather, we step forward and stand as light and salt in the world. Candlish says, it is our nature as such as the children of God, being born of God, to do righteousness as we know him to be righteous. This is a new, that is a new nature, that is the new nature in us. And it is to be cultivated, exercised, developed, and ripened. Believers don't try to blur or to dull the image that demonstrates the relationship that they have with God. You bear down on it. You strive and pray to be more Christ-like. You don't turn from your calling, but rather, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. No believer can reject this work of the Holy Spirit. You can't say with any peace or conviction that you're willing to cool your zeal for the word of God because the world doesn't accept it. You're not willing to say that you'll 
cool your zeal for the testimony of Jesus Christ because the world finds it offensive. You can't say that evil is good and good is evil. No matter how much the world demands it of you, you can't do it. And you cannot approve of turning children over into the hands of godless men and women who would lead them into hell itself. You can't do it. Why? Because you're the children of God. The God, the true God, the God of the Bible. Not an imaginary one, but the real God who has a law and who holds men accountable for that law. And as his children, you can't step back and say it's okay that all these things go on. It's not okay. You seek to be more pure because he is pure, because you are his. As the children of God, covered in love, you're not those who are seeking some sort of congeniality award from those who don't know and who hate God. And therefore you, his children, are hated as well. No, you are those who, like Paul, count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. For his sake, you've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that you might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that you may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible you might attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that you have already obtained this or are already perfect, but you press on to make it your own because Christ Jesus has made you his own. Brothers, you don't consider that you've made it your own, but you do do this. Forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, you press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you do it because you're the children of God. But with what kind of spirit do we do this? With what sort of spirit do we stand up against the world and all that's in it? As we pursue this Christ-like image and bear it to the world, it is not a spirit of violence or anger or hatred or impatience. Those aren't the characteristics of the child of God. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we turn again to God's word, we see what this purity that becomes the children of God looks like. And you can see it throughout the word. But let's just take an example. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Paul says this there. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, 
and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is what we do. This is how we bear this witness. This is how we appear as the children of God. Not by our anger, not by wrath, not by malice, but by love and deeds of love and care for others. By bearing testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ with meekness and yet confidence. Doesn't mean we don't act. We act. But we do it with the spirit of Christ. No one would accuse Christ of being wishy-washy about anything. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the spirit in which it is done. Now, all of this reflects on another admonition from the Lord in his word. And Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. He says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Are we the children of God? Well, the way we examine that is, do I see the characteristics of my father in me? Do I see them? Do I recognize them? Do I pray for them? Do I pray for that to be established in me? Is there a growing Christ-likeness that is a part of my life? If the answer to that is yes, then we see the marks of our adoption. Too many are ready to confirm their standing with God on the, behavior, on the basis of the behavior of those who don't know God, rather than on their own behavior as those who supposedly who do know God. Our character as the children of God is marked by our love for our enemies, not our hatred of them. It's marked by our willingness to pray for our enemies, not our cursing or mocking of them. It's indicated not so much by how much we are unlike the world as by how much we are like our Heavenly Father. And finally, to those who know that they are not the children of God, only the Lord knows the heart of every one of us. But those who know they're not, know that they don't have the spirit of adoption. They don't have a relationship with the Father. They know that. You may enjoy at the moment the friendship of the world. But not only is that fickle, it's fleeting. There is no camaraderie 
among souls in hell. When the rich man was in agony, he didn't look around in hell and say, can one of you help me? He looked to Abraham for help. There's no camaraderie. There's only suffering. Your bodies, your souls are precious things. And Christ calls out to you even now. Jesus stood up to read the word of God in the synagogue at Nazareth. And we are told that, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, unquote. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came into this world, beloved, to offer himself, the sinless son of God, for your sins. That through faith in him, and his redeeming work at the cross, you might be delivered from the bondage of Satan, from the condemnation of the guilt of your sins, and from the power of the grave, and exchange the life that reflects the image of the earthy for one that demonstrates that you are indeed a child of God. The Lord cries out to you, from the prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus read that day in Nazareth, saying, There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn now. Look to the Lord to be made a child of God and to see the Christ-like image of Christ in you as you become more like Christ, more like a child of God. And may the God of peace give you peace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we find some of the mystery of our day cleared up by these simple words written by John. As believers, The world does not recognize us because they do not know you. And Lord, we're not called to draw back from our likeness, but Lord, to bear down on it. And we pray for the grace to do so. Lord, if the world has made us ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ at any time in any way, may we be ashamed. And we pray, Lord, for forgiveness for that offense. And we ask you, Lord, to make us bold, to make us salt and light by your great grace. Father, we thank you for what it means to be a child of God. And Lord, for the wonderful things that are ahead for us. We see little marks here and there of our, of our adoption here. But when our Savior comes again, we will see him 
as he is, and we will be like him. And Lord, what a blessed prospect that is. Rejoice our hearts by it, Lord. Bolden us by it. And Lord, may we live for you. If there's anyone here this morning who knows him or herself not to be a child of God, Lord, may they not be content. May they not get away with putting that out of their minds. But Lord, may your spirit press the word upon their hearts. And may they hear Christ indeed speaking to them, even now through the word, crying out, look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Lord, make us ready and willing to share that gospel with them. And Father, may they know the joy of what it means to be a child of God, to have the spirit of adoption, communion with you, and the blessing and love of the Lord resting on them. Father, bless us as we continue through this day. May this Lord's Day be a day of rejoicing for all who are yours. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. What a great encouragement.